In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 5. Judges 5 is a poetic retelling of the events of the previous chapter, where God used Deborah and Barak and Jael to defeat the Canaanite army led by Sisera. The song praises God for his intervention, it celebrates the courage and willingness of the Israelites who fought, and contrasts the fate of Sisera and his mother with the peace and joy of Israel. Good morning and blessed Holy Monday to you. Today is Monday, April 3rd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'm grateful for the support of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, a ministry that provides Lutheran resources in various languages around the world. You can learn more about their work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, we're starting off our Holy Week with a dive into Judges chapter 5. And joining me this early Holy Monday, it's early for me anyway, is my guest, the Reverend Rick Jones, chaplain and vice president of spiritual life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Pastor Boo. Always uh, enjoy digging into the Word, so this will be great. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm happy to have you here. You know, I say it's early for me. It's 11 o'clock, of course. That's pretty late for most people, and, and usually for me, too. But Mondays, I usually like to take it easy, but during Holy Week, there really is no taking it easy. There's so much to do, Uh, but I'm happy to be starting off my Holy Week with you on the air. Uh, Full disclosure, we've had this discussion before, but there were some problems, so now we're live today. We're going to redo our discussion, Uh, but you know what? I think that's great because this is such a fascinating text, but I only mention it because I just wanted to tell you how grateful I am for you agreeing to come back on the air and uh, and discuss uh, judges five with me again. Yeah, no, I I totally understand. Things happen. Uh, hopefully, we can be as entertaining and insightful as we were the first time. Oh yeah, they'll never know. It was amazing. We we had so many great insights, <laughs> and it was. Uh, we'll just we'll see if we can capture uh, capture it in the bottle this time. Well, I tell you what. Um, I will ask, though, you know, I know that you were up there at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch. Uh, how are things there during the Lenten season? I mean, it's it must be a little different than maybe church life. Uh, does it does it affect what you guys do at all? Sure. We we um, we try to build some series into the, the Lenten um, season. I like to do um, a focus on superheroes. I know that sounds weird, but... I, I look at it as uh, our, our prayer during the Lenten season is, Lord, I need a hero. You know, we focus on our inability to save ourselves, our inability to um, find that redemption. And the stories that we tell in our, our world, whether it's through comic books or literature or movies or TV or even music, they all... Are, are, are touching on these themes of needing a hero, whether that's for from the, the monster inside of us, right, that sinful nature, or uh, justice in an unjust world, or um, redemption for our past failures or mistakes, or just someone to save us, to rescue us from this broken reality. Uh, it all points ultimately to the real hero, and that is Christ, and that's who we're waiting for in the Lenten season. We go through the 40 days uh, in the wilderness, waiting for 
the, the hero to make the scene. And that's what we got to celebrate yesterday. And so I build that into the, the chapel messages and services, and we do some fun things like that. And then we always try to do a special Easter Sunday service, which is uh, Sunday is an unusual day for us to have service. We usually do it Thursday afternoons, but Sunday more Easter Sunday, we, we get one of the, um, the praise bands from one of the local congregations here in Minot to, to come and um, give us a fantastic victory celebration as we, we celebrate the resurrection on Easter. And we've got um, similar celebrations at the other campuses as well. Uh, they've been focusing on um, some different aspects of, of our relationships with God at, in both Bismarck and Fargo. So we, we have the celebrations, we have the the special seasonal things, and we really try to help uh, our residents see the connection to these needs are universal, and we have a, a Savior that is for all of us as well. Oh, what an amazing message, and something that we def- something we need to hear all year long, but Holy Week and, the, and the, toward the end of Lenten Tide is just—it's such a, a great opportunity for us to renew our connection to what Christ has done for us and, and how he's come and saved us from our sins and rescued us from the evils of the world. And I know that you deal with a lot of folks who are looking for a hero, and, and they can find right. that, the true hero in Jesus, and I think that's just amazing. Yeah, yep. Well, would you begin our time together with prayer before we dig right into the text? I would be happy to. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word today, we ask that you would make it come alive in our hearts. Uh, Open us to receive your instruction, to receive your love and grace as you impart it to us through the wisdom of your holy word. Bless us and use this time to guide us to more Uh, to grow more into the people you have called us to be. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, all right, so we're looking at our our text today. This is chapter 5, and I think we're going to find that chapter 5 is a whole lot like chapter (laughs) 4, because (laughs) it tells the same story, doesn't it? But it does it in a way that's, I guess, a little different than, than what we've heard so far. Uh, give us a little bit of background about what we're going to be getting into. Right. So uh, Judges chapter 5 is the sort of poetic retelling of the events of Judges chapter 4. Um, it's even done as a song. It's a song of, of Deborah uh, and Barak. And they're singing about the victory that God has given them over the Canaanites. Canaanites were the oppressors, the the villains at this point in Israel's history, um, somewhere around 1200 BC. Although some people get very specific and say, "Oh, it was 1217." It was around 1200 BC, <laughs> um, and they were given an incredible, uh, you know, un, unfathomable victory over this huge Canaanite army. Uh, with just these these Israelites that had been being oppressed. And so what they're doing is they are recounting that in song. They are inspired by the events to to try to share this with future generations. And one of the ways you do this is to put it in song. It's actually uh, a trope in in you know fantasy literature, films and movies to inspire people to action by assuring them that their actions are those that will be sung about for generations to come. And here in Judges chapter 5, we have a real-life example of that. 
And um, if you look at the sort of uh, Hebrew of it, and, and you talk to some of the scholars and you read some of the commentaries, uh, it's it's very clear that this very likely is the case, that this chapter had been handed down for generations before the rest of the book of Judges is compiled to tell the history of God's people. Its word choices and its grammatical constructions seem very ancient and archaic, even compared to other sections of poetry in the Old Testament. Um, It also has a lot of rhetorical devices, such as alliteration, it has rhyme scheme and meter, and in some places, automatopoeia, so the, the words sound like what they're describing. And all of these things would help make this a catchy piece of, of literature, it would help people remember it, and so it can be passed on down through the generations. Now, we don't see that as much in the English as you would if you're reading the, the ancient Hebrew, but there are a few places where even in the translations into English, it comes out. We see repeated words, we see repeated phrases, we get um, sort of sounds that uh, and words that really convey the action here in, in a um, with sort of mnemonic devices and things. And so it really speaks to what it is. It is a a joyful, celebratory retelling of what God has done for them. He has given them an unthinkable uh, victory in this time. Uh, And we have it set down in music so that all generations can continue to hear of God's saving work for the Israelites under um, Deborah and Barak. The chapter begins with the first verse saying, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So it, yeah. it, it presents it as, you know, the, the victory has been won, and they burst out yeah. into song like a like a Disney musical. Uh, of course, we're going <laughs> to read the words here, and it might be a little bit more graphic than a Disney musical. But but is that what is really going on? I mean, it does make sense that you're going to take the the events you're going to set them to music so that you can pass them down through the generations. And it's also what you've said, at least what I've heard, is it's kind of neat that really the song is older than the previous chapter where it's related. In fact, in very many ways, that relation probably comes from the song. But um, yeah. are they breaking out into song? I mean, you know, again, passing it down is one thing, but to sing these songs, it just seems it seems kind of, um, I don't know, it is almost like a trope. I, I, it's, it's hard to get my mind around it, but, but there are other places yeah. in the Bible where this occurs too. Right, right. We have um, other instances of songs being used to uh, recount God's deeds, the mighty works of, of the Lord, so the people remember. I don't know that they had dance steps and things, and I don't know that it's like a flash mob type situation, but, uh, you know, to have people sing praises isn't unusual. I don't know if they... You know, if, if this is a spontaneous, um, right away in the moment, um, breaking out into song and everybody adds to the verses or things like that. But certainly um, commemorating these things in songs is a usual, uh, a regular sort of occurrence. Uh, we have that happen previous in the Old Testament with Moses and Miriam, <clears throat> excuse me, after God delivers them from the hands of the Egyptians. And so here we have other sort of echoes of Exodus in this text as well that we'll, we'll see later on with the way a river and the waters are, are sort of working. Uh, but here, you know, God is using this to, to bring victory again to his people, and they want to 
they want to commemorate that. They want to celebrate that. And here it's under the leadership of Deborah as a prophetess um, and the general Barack as they're fighting against um, Jael is the is the the general for the Canaanite army um, under the or <clears throat> excuse me Jael is the the woman that's going to end up bringing victory to the people uh, over Sisera uh, excuse me misspeaking there uh, who's the the general for the the Canaanite army um, different situation but still something that's incredible and unthinkable and so they need to uh, carry it on. Uh, in celebration, singing praise to God is how we uh, we do that. Well, let's read verses uh, 1, which I just read, but verses 1 all the way through 9, and it, it's starting to set the stage for, I guess, a precursor to the actual events of chapter 4. So here we go, yeah. uh, starting with um, the very first verse of chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless Yahweh. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To Yahweh I will sing. I will make melody to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before Yahweh, even Sinai before Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless Yahweh. So clearly, Deborah is the one speaking in this instance, uh, but she's yep. setting the stage for, I guess, the condition of the na of the nation, the condition of of Israel before all of these events took place. It, it's it kind of sounds like a like a an apocalyptic scene, a, a war zone. You know, the villagers aren't there, the highways are abandoned, people are afraid. Uh, what's uh, what 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 scene are we being uh, given here? Yeah, so she is definitely establishing the context for which God's victory is going to be brought to the people. So under uh, Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, um, there's been incredible oppression. There's all sorts of terrible things that are, are, are being done. People are afraid to travel. Uh, but before we even get to um, sort of the setting of, of the scene, we, we, we're, we're told Again, the victory has already taken place, and so now we're going to sing this. Uh, they, they say, hero kings, give hero princes. The idea here, they're, they're making the defeated Canaanites join in the celebration. As this is, you know, about 200 years before Israel is going to have a king. That's the only explanation there. So they're adding embarrassment to the military loss by making them join in this. But it's, you know, it's one of those situations where even God's enemies have to acknowledge the demonstration of his power and might. Like we see um, the rulers in the book of Daniel, they declare the wonder and majesty of Yahweh after he has intervened for, whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or for Daniel. We see these sorts of things from time to time. But here, uh, they're making the defeated um, rulers 
engage with the celebration, acknowledge that victory came over them at the hands of Yahweh, the hands of the God of the people that they were trying to oppress. And then we get the introduction to to what we're doing. Um, who's receiving praise in the song is as Yahweh, the Lord is introduced with grandiose style, having power over the elements. Um, and we're going to see that demonstrated later on. The, the mention of these other places, Seir and Edom, they're callbacks to the patriarchs and the path of God's covenant being traced through the the people that he blessed and, and what he is going to do with them. And he's going to continue to make that, that known here. And now even the skies and mountains are trembling in his presence. And that's who's going to deliver them. Why does he need to deliver them? Because they are being oppressed so much. They're afraid to travel, right? They, they, they don't even want to have commerce uh, intertribally or interregionally anymore because they're afraid to be on the roads of what's going to happen to them. Uh, the line about villages could indicate that there's no more fortified cities anymore. They've been so beaten down that they're just scraping by. They're weak. They're weary. They're fearful of how the Canaanites are treating them. Uh, they've, they've been so overcome that they no longer have weapons or shields they, it's everything they can do to feed themselves and keep themselves alive. And so they need help. They need someone to intervene for them. And so they cry out to God, and he gives them a deliverer. It's going to be Deborah in this case. She's called to be a prophetess and a judge. We've got some other prophetesses in the Old Testament as well. Um, you know, Miriam, uh, who also sings and has that role. Hulda, Neodia. And if that's how you pronounce it, Isaiah's wife is implied to to have that title, but it's in, in, you know a little unclear whether or not that's as in official capacity or as his wife. And then in the New Testament, we have Anna referenced as a as a prophetess. So we have these 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 roles, and Deborah's going to fill that role here. But I think in this instance, more maybe more importantly or more um, distinctly, as the judge, the the sort of social leader uh, or maybe judicial leader. She's making the decisions for the people. Um, and then they call up Barak as the, the general who's supposed to help. But what's also interesting here is we also see why the Israelites need a deliverer in this time. It says they were worshiping other gods. They had chosen new gods. They're worshiping the Canaanite idols. And this is the source of their oppression and their punishment. Um, it got terrible because they were acting unfaithfully towards Yahweh. Un they were unfaithful to the one who had already delivered them for several generations. And so when the things get so bad, they cry out. They acknowledge that what they've done is wrong. They cry out for deliverance. They cry out for mercy, and God answers. Right? It's how nearly every section of the book of Judges opened. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, insert Canaanite army A, B, or C uh, came in to oppress them. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Um, in this case, it's, I think, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it gives us that same formula. The leaders are then appointed as God hears their prayers. And it's not going to matter that there are no more weapons or defenses for Israel, because the Lord is going to accomplish his purposes no matter what. Those who trust in his power are still glad to fight on 
on behalf of him and his people, and we're going to see them listed here and given some honor. Um, but he's going to do what he promises. He will always be the God that intervenes for his people. He is the one that's bringing the victory. He's the one that will bring them salvation. And it's going to happen through this military campaign. But ultimately, the final victory is going to be in a very unlikely way. It's through um, a, a scene of irony with very graphic depiction of its, of its exercise. As we see Jael, this, this outsider, a, a wife of a Kenite, who lives in a tent, is going to deliver the, the fatal blow to Sisera, the, the enemy general. Well, as we look at these just first few verses, too, one of the things that stands out to me is how Deborah describes herself. So we've talked about in the previous chapter on Friday, we talked about this, too, Deborah being in this role of prophetess. What that what does that really mean? What does it mean that she's a judge? She's she's also, I think, the only judge that actually does or at least is described as doing kind of judging things sitting under the tree of Deborah. <laughs> yeah. But but here it says, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Right. And what I love about this is in this day and age of, you know, gender confusion, here we have a description of a strong leader, uh, a, a woman, but she's appealing to the characteristics that make women so amazingly strong. And that is her her idea of a motherhood. We don't know if she was actually a mother, but she was a mother to Israel. And so we think about the nurturing and caring for and directing the people that comes with that office of motherhood. It doesn't say right. I, Deborah, had to arise and be a king in the place of, you know, Barack, who was this this coward, which is partly true. But she says, yeah. <laughs> I arose as a mother. And so I just and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I just I love how it really is elevating that she is operating in the sense that. Um, she's using the gifts God gave her as opposed to uh, trying to be something she's not. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I agree. She is, she is fulfilling that role of, of nurture. She's fulfilling that role of uh, caring for the people of Israel as they've been so worn down and so beaten into, um, you know, desperation by what has been happening to them at the hands of the Canaanites, that they need a the motherly nurturing love to bring them back to a place where they can have that confidence in, in who they're supposed to be, where they can have the, um, the will to do what is right because they have all of their needs met. And so what also I think as that, that motherly role, she's kind of a mother to Barack too, right? He's the one that's supposed to be going out and in leading the army. He's supposed to be going out and taking charge of this, but he's not willing to unless she goes with him. And so <laughs> she's going to do it, and she's going to and she's doing it to hold him accountable, right? That's something a mother does for her children and a father too. But uh, I think a mother has a way of doing it that's uh, maybe a little gentler and gets the the results that are are needed. She's going to be there, but he's going to be the one that has to fulfill his role as the general. Um, but then, and she says, though, but by the way, um, you're not going to get the 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 big congla congratulations here uh, in her her role as the prophetess. Maybe she's given the understanding that a, a woman's going to receive the glory, 
And maybe she's thinking it's going to be her, and we're going to see that it's not. Um, right. But it's not Barack, right? This is maybe a shameful thing, but he still does what he needs to do. Right? He let he let the mother down, but he's still going to go and do his duty. And so I think maybe that's part of it too. But I, I, I think I'm with you there that there's a, a clear sense that this is the type of, of leader they need. They need that motherly support, that motherly love to guide them to this, this next step. Well, and I think she chastises him in a way that is acceptable because of her motherly role. For instance, when she tells him right. in the previous chapter, hey, listen, you know, oh, you want, you want me to go with you? Well, okay, I'm going to go with you, but you're not going to get the glory. It's going to go to a woman. Had, say, yeah. a man said that, that would be fighting words, but coming from yeah. from Deborah, it's like, oh, wow, it is to his great shame. Uh, and not because of male-female roles, but because of his leadership role. He he should have he been um, ready to lead for the Lord. Uh, two more right. verses I'm going to add because it really completes this initial thought, because it begins talking to these princes and kings, and now it says in verse 10, Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich yeah. carpets, and you who walk by the sea. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of Yahweh, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of Yahweh, and it continues. But in these verses, there's some sarcasm I sense here, right? Because it's to the princes and the kings, but they're not riding on war horses. They're sitting on these white donkeys and luxurious carpets and meanwhile they're being overrun by by the outsiders their people are falling after the gods of foreigners and and they're just i guess what living their best life right there's yeah i think there's kind of you can we can take this a couple of of ways one it could be sort of um you got to get the the nobles and the the elite behind the cause here they should be on board with this immediately, but they're not. They have to be sort of not coerced isn't quite right, but uh, encouraged. Right? They have to be brought along, and so they have to go and, and get them to, to get people motivated. And you appeal to the elites and those that are you know the, the wealthy to do that. The white donkeys and the, the carpets are definitely a sign of wealth and prestige here. Um, so it could be that. It could also be that this is more of the uh, embarrassment to the, the foreigners. Maybe this is an, a, um, an extension of those kings and princes that need to participate in this uh, as a humiliation. Uh, or it could be the uh, getting the cultural influencers uh, to pick up their role and get the people excited and motivated for this, this military charge. Um, especially when it appeals to the musicians. I think uh, they're, they're some of the spreaders of culture. So you, you got to get them ready for this fight. They got to stir up the people. Uh, it reminds me of when we might have a natural disaster or a big societal event and popular musicians and, and celebrities will, will put on benefit concerts and, and host events to encourage the public to get involved and pledge funds for help and that sort of thing. It could be an appeal of that kind. Uh, an appeal to the cultural centers to be um, a call. And it's, it's telling them to call back to those other songs, right. That are already being sung. Those other stories that have already been retold. 
It's almost remember the other times the Lord delivered the people. Remember the songs that are sung. Remember all the times that Yahweh has saved us. He will do it again. The people will march for the Lord. Let's go. Uh, and so it could be that sort of a, uh, a social stirring of the people as well. I think any of those can fit in this context. And, um, yeah, I think they all kind of can work and flow. You get that. The sarcasm, you maybe get a little bit of shame, or it's it's the appeal to uh, the influencers, to use a, a modern term. Yeah, I guess that makes complete sense, too, because, you know, the whole point is you're wanting—I mean, this is after the fact, though, right? So I guess the, the, the telling of this story is for sure. future generations to, to line up behind— the Lord to not repeat the errors of the past. Of course, we know how that turned out, but, but the, the goal is to communicate that look how God worked in these amazing and surprising ways in our history. He continuously keeps yeah. his promises despite what we do. And so um, in verse 11, just to repeat it, you know, at the watering places, repeat these triumphs of the Lord. Um, what I also love as we head into the break and something for us to think about, is that the credit goes to God. It doesn't, yes, I mean, we're going, Jael's going to get a shout out. <laughs> um, the, the people who, who stood up for the Lord are going to get a shout out later in the, in the song. Uh, certainly Deborah acknowledges her own role, but it's all to the deference that behind everything, behind the victory is Yahweh. And, and that's of course something yeah. for us to remember. Yeah. And that's clear all the way through. It opens up that way. Right. And they, we see his presence, Throughout all of this, it's always reminding the people who is really behind this victory. Well, folks, we're going to take just a few minutes for a break, and uh, so don't go anywhere. But when we come back, Pastor Jones and I are going to keep on going through Judges chapter 5. We're going to keep hearing the song of Deborah and Barak, and basically a retelling of Judges chapter 4 in this poetic form. Uh, hopefully, you'll still be there when we come back. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boom. With me this morning is the Reverend Rick Jones, Chaplain and Vice President of Spiritual Life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Friends, thank you for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. 
or you can connect with me on Facebook. You can ask me anything or just say hi. If you like Thy Strong Word, why not share it with others who might enjoy it too? Uh, the program airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org. You can also listen to it on the KFUO app or on your favorite podcasting service. I appreciate that you've chosen to grow in your faith with me and my guests every weekday, so thank you for being part of the show. Well, now, Pastor Jones, before the break, we were uh, you know, talking about just sort of the, setting the stage, who, who's, what was going on, to whom this, uh, I guess, song is being written, right, it, it, and, the, and the purpose for it, to go proclaim it everywhere. It's probably time for us to get into the actual text itself. So I'm going to start with um, just a, a beat before chapter, verse 12, pardon me, and I'm going to read, oh, I'd say through verse 18. That should get us into it a little bit. So here we go. Yeah. Then down to the gates marched the people of Yahweh. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of Yahweh marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So, um, we're, we're getting some shout outs now, both good and bad calling out, yeah. uh, calling out some of these uh, different tribes and some responded to the God's call to Deborah's leadership, to Barack's leadership and some for their own various reasons did not. Let's look at that. Yeah. So those verses that you just read are kind of the roll call for action of the people in their parts in the coming fight First, the leaders of Deborah and Barak, you know, Deborah's going to get first billing as the prophetess and judge, and it's through her direction that Barak is called into service. And then, and again, if we remember the previous chapter, he's not exactly an eager leader. Uh, so we get that whole situation with him and Deborah, Deborah going with into battle. Um, after that, we get the various tribes listed, along with their willingness or unwillingness to help. Ephraim and Benjamin are in for the fight. They're ready to go. They're, they're, they're given a place of honor there. Um, Makir is not one of the tribes that we are familiar with. And if we look at the, the history of the tribes, we learn that this is probably a generational reference for Manasseh. Um, Makir is the eldest son of Manasseh. And so at this time, perhaps the tribe is known as the next generational leader. We don't know for sure, but likely it's, it's understood that Makir is referenced to Manasseh. Um, Issachar also joins the ranks. Uh, they're united uh, under Barak, and so they're willing to fight. Zebulun and Naphtali are also valiant volunteers for the cause, and so they get special note at the end of the section as they're willing to literally put their lives on the line. So they're kind of given a special 
mention at the end there. When they talk about Reuben, it's interesting. Reuben appears to be very wishy-washy on the subject. They, they have to deliberate and think deeply on, on whether or not this is something they should be doing. Now, we don't, aren't given any more context. Maybe they're dealing with their own struggles, but we don't know. Ultimately, they are not willing to join this fight with their kinsmen. Um, let me get this reference to Gilead. Again, not one of the tribes, but likely a geographical reference to the tribe of Gad. So Gad, Dan, and Asher, they likewise do not enter the fight to stand beside their fellow Israelites. They stay in their respective territories separated from their country. And Gad is across the Jordan, so maybe they're dealing with some things from the other side. But again, not mentioned. They, just, they stay in their, in their area on the other side of the Jordan River there. And then Asher and Dan, it seems to report that they're too busy with their ports, their, their, their trade, their commerce in the Mediterranean and things to get involved in the battle for the promised land. Now, again, maybe there's other issues going on. Maybe they're dealing with more localized fighting with other groups. We don't know. All we're, we're shown is from this song and from those that are celebrating God's victory, these are the ones that did or did not enter the battle. And if you did not enter, you're not looked on with favor. Uh, but then if you're counting, if you're doing the math, we're still missing two tribes. And so the absence of Judah and Simeon, we don't know why they're not mentioned. Uh, we can only speculate. Some have maybe thought maybe there's already some bad blood or some, some social distance between these tribes um, and the others. Or, again, some people said, well, maybe they're, they're um, busy fighting on the other front. We don't know. Uh, regardless, we have our recruits, and the proper honor and proper shame has now been recorded throughout history uh, for, for all generations to hear of what God does and how his people are either with the rest of Israel or they are not. You know, and we, all, we often think about Israel, or I should say, you know, when I'm reading the Old Testament, I get into the habit of thinking of Israel as this collective whole. You know, we, we talk about yeah. the 12 tribes of Israel as if they are this uniform unit, and we it's like the United States of America you could talk about as a collective whole, but it doesn't mean everybody's getting along, <laughs> and it doesn't mean right, that all right, the states right. are always unified. Um, I think that's something that's sort of missed when we, when we talk about them, when we think about them, and this really illustrates that not only does each tribe, because of their different geographical inheritances, like, for instance, you mentioned Dan staying with the ships. There's some speculation that, you know, because they hadn't even really taken their inheritance yet, they haven't even really yeah, they haven't true. even established themselves yet. So they don't have time to go or they don't have they don't believe they have the ability to go fight in this other this other front. But anyway, we see that they everybody has their own thing going on and there's also a lot of intertribal uh conflict. And that's just something yeah. that is illustrated here but we don't often talk about. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're very correct on that. We we tend to lump it all together, and maybe that's our American, you know, sort of mindset. We 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 think of the tribes more as states, but Israel is you know the country, and so we have that sense behind it, where we don't understand the mindset so much when it was still the colonies, right? Did you know? 
the different colonies interact the same way that the states do today? Or was it different because the identity of the nation wasn't the primary um, feature of, of our national heritage? I don't know. Yeah. No, it's just it's something for us to keep in mind. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23 because then we just get a little bit more. The kings yeah. came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Merose, says the angel of Yahweh. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to help of Yahweh, to the help of Yahweh against the mighty. So the kings came, they fought. So the kings, who are they? They fought the kings of Canaan. That's plural. Um, we're actually getting some details here, like this torrent of Kishon, things that weren't included in chapter 4. And so we have to kind of discern what these might be. Yeah, so the, the kings, they came and fought. Uh, again, probably just a reference to the various Canaanite entities that are that are seeking to overthrow the, the Israelites at this time. Um, they thought, they appear to have thought that it was going to be an easy victory for them, uh, but they are sadly mistaken, as when you take on the Israelites, you're taking on the people of God, and that means God, you're taking on God by extension. And so here we see a depiction of the elements themselves are, are going to start fighting. Um, I, I suppose quickly mentioned that we, we, we understand that they thought it was going to be an easy victory. Uh, they were going to get the spoils. They were going to get all that gold and silver and the plunder. Uh, but here, nope, they didn't get anything. They, they got the opposite of what they were expecting. Uh, they were handedly defeated. And why? Because even the elements are going to fight against them. Because, again, they're not just fighting the people. They're fighting Yahweh, uh, and he is the one that is the God of creation. And so creation well, I was going to say that, that part really stands out to me. I didn't mean to interject, but like yeah, that, no, no, that no. 20 I want to focus on. From heaven the stars fought, and from their courses yeah. they fought against Sisera. Um, and then, of course, you, you are going to bring up, I know, the, the torrent Kishon in terms of elements. But just beginning with the stars, I mean, yeah. is this uh, – is this kind of a supernatural event in the skies, like the falling of meteorites or eclipses on the people, or is it more metaphorical or angelic? Um, uh, you know, again, I know you don't have any special insight, but but what do you find that that's really referring to? Right. So, I mean, perhaps we've got some, you know, meteors falling or something like that. But I think what's more likely is this is an allusion to an ancient Near East belief that rain came from the stars. And so the stars joining the fight here uh, is an allusion to a downpour that happened. And then that fits nicely with what we see happening with the Kishon, with the river. Um, if there's a sudden downpour that's causing problems for the Canaanites, the river is taking on all this extra water and there's flooding happening. It, it turns this river into a torrent, as the text says here, and it sweeps the enemies away, which 
with that, I can't help but hear an echo of Exodus, right, as, as God swept away Pharaoh's army with the Red Sea. Uh, here we see the Kishon serving that purpose. God is getting nature itself, creation itself is joining the fight. Um, the, the chariots are being bogged down in the mud and the mire as this, this downpour is happening. The river is, is overflowing and flooding and sweeping these Canaanites away. That is what you're fighting against. You're not just fighting against the people. You're fighting against the one who's caring for the people, and he is the God of creation. Well, and they certainly could not do anything against, you know, the God of creation. As you mentioned earlier, you know, there really is no battle because the the sin of the Israelites is not trusting in that God is with them. I mean, you know, they're being led by by this uh, motherly figure, a a general who doesn't want to go without her. The ultimate glory is kind of going to go. The final blow, quite literally, is going to go to a foreigner. And and but at the end of the day, they have the stars and the and in the heavens, and they they have the the seas on the shore. They have the waters and the creation. Everything is on their side because right. they are on God's side. So turning after these false gods really makes it look very foolish. Um, yeah, yeah, you mentioned. And, 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 go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, and in this section, it's very poetic too, and so highlighting that that importance that it's God using his full might here. Uh, this is where we get a lot of that um, alliteration. We get the rhyme scheme. We get the, the words. And even in the English, it starts to come out with the loud beat of the horse hoofs, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Um, the English isn't a perfect you know, translation of the Hebrew, but this is where those, a lot of those poetic elements are coming out. And we get even in the English, the Kishon, the torrent of the Kishon, uh, it sounds almost onomatopoetic it's, it, when we think about water. And so this is a, a highlight, even rhetorically, in the text to show that this is the key. It's not the people, it's not the Israelites that are bringing this victory. It is God that's bringing this victory. And the, even the construction of the, the text is showing us that. Curse Meroz says the angel of Yahweh. Curse its inhabitants yeah. thoroughly because they did not come to the help of Yahweh. God doesn't need help, <laughs> right? But <laughs> the angel of the Lord curses the city of uh, Meroz or Meroz. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be oddly specific. Yeah. So apparently there was, whether these are a faction of specifically Israelites or it's those that are supposed to be allies of the Israelites, uh, they did not join in defending God's people, and so they are, are given a curse as well, um, set apart even from those listed earlier in the roll call of Israel. But these are those that did not help, and so they are given a curse, the opposite of a blessing. They did not answer the Lord's call. They did not care for God's people, and so they are an enemy as well. And the angel of the Lord, uh, often in the Old Testament, we assume this is, you know, this is the hand of God. This is the the representative that is going to make uh, God's will known. Uh, Some people have speculated that where we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we're actually talking about the pre-incarnate son. So this is Jesus before he is born and named Jesus. Um, 
I don't know that we want to speculate much more on that, but here clearly uh, a presence of God's army through this angel of the Lord um, being shown to, to be present through this, this fight for God's people. You mentioned earlier that the purpose of putting this to song was to proclaim it and be able to pass it down to children and be uh, reminded of the great victory of God. And we do that, too, today with lots of our Sunday school hymns that are telling the stories of the Bible in these beautiful hymn forms. Well, verses 24 through 27, just listen, folks, and see if you can hear them on the lips of our children singing at the front (laughs) of the church on Sunday. Here we go. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk, and she brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell, and where he sank... There he fell, dead. <laughs> and then everybody claps for the kids. So, <laughs> but, but, but really, it's visceral, but war is visceral. What happened is real, and communicating the truth doesn't need to be sanitized because this is God's victory, uh, but through this most blessed of women jail. Very, very interesting and graphic text here. Yeah, so again, retelling the events of the previous chapter, um, which in its own right, just in the narrative and for very graphic depiction of the, the final victory here. Uh, but here we, we almost dwell on it, right? The, the repetition of it, um, the, the mallets in hand, and we hear the word struck, the word crushed, the word shattered and pierced, sank, fell, he lay between her feet, sank, fell, he sank, he fell. That repetition over and over and over with this to really dwell on this moment, um, putting it into the people's heads. They can't help but think about what this is and how, as you said, visceral it is. Yeah, not exactly the one that we're going to have the children singing, but very much still showing that God will bring deliverance even in unexpected ways. Uh, He is a God of real people, and so we have real horrific events depicted here. And we're going to see the horrific side of war in the next couple verses too, but here how it's so uh, described. And it's interesting, uh, again, the, the glory was going to go to a woman, but it wasn't Deborah. It was Jael, a wife of a Kenite, so an outsider. And it was interesting, the song, early on the song, it mentioned Shamgar, so not just um, a time stamp, but also showing culturally what's going on. Shamgar was an outsider as well, not an Israelite. And so Shamgar and Jael, two non-Israelites who bring deliverance to God's people. God will accomplish his purposes in ways we do not expect. If the people are not faithful, God will provide faithful ones to deliver the people. And we see that happening here through the hand of Jael, um, I suppose a, a house, kind of a housewife, but here a tent wife, one who's taking care of the camp, taking care of um, 
their homestead, which happens to be a tent. And so she, she does the best. She knows how to set up a tent and she does that right through Sisera's head. Um, yes, graphic, stark, but incredible irony and incredible um, unexpectedness through how God is bringing victory this day. And as graphic as that part of the song is, uh, you know, what I think is coming next is more uh, deeply sad. Because now what we're going to hear is Deborah, who's singing the song, who's who's ostensibly written the song. um, She is going to now be looking at the at the whole situation through the eyes of Sisera's mother. We're going to read verses 28 through 30. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a a womb or two for every man, a spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, a spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as a spoil? So she she imagines Mama Sisera waiting for her son to come home. You know, she introduces herself as a mother, and she ends this as a mother's point of view. I think— it really is pointing to the senselessness of all the violence because, you know, what is he going after? Spoil? And yet, you know, now because of her her son's, you know, uh, exploits, uh, you know, now a mother is without her son and she's just sitting there waiting for him to come home and he's not coming home. No, he won't come home. And, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's really interesting. You know, we said, well, why would Deborah do this? Why would the the prophetess who is, you know, telling forth the victory that God brought to his people. Why is she putting us in such a disheartening situation now that we are looking through the, the eyes of Sisera's mother? And I think you might be onto it there with the senselessness. There's always, war is always terrible. Bloodshed is always awful. This is not how things should be. And so she's showing the reality of the horrors of war, the terrible truth that is going on. There's always two sides of this. Even if there might be a clear, you know, villain and a clear hero, it's still an awful um, consequence for the people involved with this. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, the handmaiden trying to uh, comfort the mother, even using that as an opportunity to talk about some of the horrors that happen with war, with what happens right. with the plundering and, 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 you know, a, a womb or two for every man. That's, that's terrible. It's oh, yeah, right. It sounds, you know, it, and, uh, but we see Deborah not shying away from it. So we see the truth of what's happening, um, even though it's a hard truth to hear. And so we are left, yes, God brings victory to his people, but maybe it's a time not just for celebration, but reflection within that celebration. What is the cost of victory? Well, and you say that Deborah doesn't shy away, and she doesn't, because while I right. do believe that this is a little bit of an introspection, seeing it from Sisera's mother, I think when it talks about the things like the womb or two for every man, it, it sort of wakes us up. It's like, you know, yeah, mama Cicero is upset, but 
they're not on the right side because then the whole chapter yeah. ends with 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Yahweh, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then we're told, and the land had rest for 40 years. So you yeah. know, we have another period of rest. But it's um, it's just I don't know what is more striking the 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 prose in chapter four or the poetry in chapter five. But regardless, together, this is there's no wonder why the author of the book of Judges dedicated two chapters to relating the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm getting two different sort of perspectives on it that way. Uh, if you if you kind of gloss over the, I guess the gore and the the visceral nature of, of everything involved with this war and this campaign in chapter four, uh, you're kind of stopped in your tracks in chapter five to be forced to reflect on, on all of it. But yeah, I know it's interesting. You know, she goes from, we were given an incredible victory by, by Yahweh fighting even with the elements to, um, Sisera's mother reflecting on, well, where is he? And she's not going to see her son return. But then the handmaid say, but what was the reality? Israel, yes, we were given a victory. It was at a great cost to other people, but they would have done the same thing to us. And this is what they would have been after. Uh, so let us remember, we do not want to be the enemy of the Lord. Instead, we put our trust and our hope in him as he is the one who will rise to the occasion to save his people. He intervenes on our behalf. And it is in him who we put our trust. He gets the the glory at the beginning of this song, throughout the middle of the song, and it ends with it, it declaring his praise. And so that's where we are left to realize who gives this generation of rest. It's the efforts of Yahweh. Yes, there are people involved, but at the direction and at the will of what the Lord is doing. Well, and that's where we'll leave it today. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Rick Jones, Chaplain and Vice President of Spiritual Life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Pastor Boo. And folks, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this week is Holy Week. On Good Friday, we have a special free text First Friday episode of Thy Strong Word. It features myself and two guests, the Reverends Chris Amon and Jesse Baker. We'll be discussing Jesus's final words from the cross. So tune in to it and listen live or catch it on demand this Friday. Tomorrow, however, we move right into Judges chapter 6. So be there and, uh, and hear how they did evil in the sight of the Lord again. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. Father, keep us in thy strong word.